welcome to Yuppies and Harpoons. I guess the guy who pressed start was not me, so I was expecting he'd take over and do the introduction, but he did not, so it defaults back to me, folks. You're listening to episode, I don't know, 13 of this podcast. Um, that if, if we're going to stop, then we probably should stop on this one. Jacob, what do you think? Lucky number 13. We just got to double down at this point. I thought about going directly from 12 to, you know, to 14, you know, like a hotel manager, but um, yeah, I decided not to. Yeah. Uh, it, it's spooky season, right? It's only fitting. Yeah, yeah. I was just trying to, speaking of the spooky season, do you think Halloween is like a pagan holiday? That was something I was looking up recently. Is this what keeps you up at night? Just wandering? Yes. Is it a pagan Definitely. holiday? And then President's Day comes around. Is this a pagan holiday as well? It's celebrating presidents. not Christmas. Not Jesus or, or Mary in your case. Um, well, I, that's a, who knows at this point. I'm not a huge fan of Halloween. I think it's kind of pointless. I'm not, but I, I'm also not someone who loves dressing up and, uh, and playing around. So I'm not the best person to ask. I'm not like huge in favor of Halloween and not really my flavor. I would say it's it's a good thing for grown men not to like to dress up and play around. I think that's yeah, the, yeah. The fact that that's good. That's that's uh, admirable of you. So do you, do you like do you putting on tights as that a, you're torturing in your uh, basement? We do. Yeah. So we have a um, uh, yeah a cat. We tie him up at night. Um, we're recording this a little late, so usually the cat's not tied up when we record. But yeah. Um, do do you like do you like wearing tights and walking around as a grown man, Joe? <laughs> Only when my cat's uh, watching. So, well, well I, I have before a, I have we digress completely, before we digress completely, um, we got some some interesting things. We're gonna kick off tonight with one of our uh, with a kind of our first series on demographics. So it's kind of a loaded topic, something both Joe and I kind of pretty passionate about uh everything from urbanization as we're going to talk on today to fertility rates um and just overall trends within western society and, and where things are going um some a lot of fascinating things um especially since covid um some some revelations that have come um just changing culture during covid um uh, but before we dive into that i i think it's worth mentioning a couple world events happening in the world um, and locally here domestically. Um, first one being Speaker of the House vote and the pending budget um, that will Congress have a shutdown or will they be able to muster something together and figure out how to do their job? So um, do you want to kick us off kind of on kind of the updates of, of, of that, Joe, and, and your thoughts around the, the madness happening in the Republican Party and what that means for the entire country absolutely so yeah i just got my mormon bible um romney a reckoning by, for those who aren't watching um by mckay copkins who is you know a good mormon himself and I tell you what, I'm I'm excited to read this book, and so I, that that's for, for those who don't know, this is where I stand. So um, the next thing I have to say is that Tom Emmer should try to get Democrats to vote for him. Uh, he needs to stop being a 
weasel. A, pan, you know? a pansy. Uh, okay. Yeah, there a pansy. Go. A pansy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm tired. I'm just. I, I'm, I'm tired. My, my cat. Point. My cat was my uh, meowing earlier. You're just a little confused. That's all. Um, I, I, I'm tired of the what's, GOP. What's the advantage? What's the advantage of that? Uh, you know, in the sense of giving up power, then by conceding to the other party crossing the aisle. Well, um, because I think that there needs to be a lesson that's taught to the far right flank that threw out McCarthy, and that's that the people in the center have the leverage. The people in the center are the ones that can go over and make a deal with the Democrats. The people in the center are the ones that come from purple districts. They're the ones who can dictate the direction of the party. If people on the far right want to throw out a conservative speaker that was in the middle of the – that was basically found himself right in the middle of the caucus, then – they can get someone that's further to the center. And if the guy from the center needs to get Republicans and Democrats in order to get a, a majority, that's his prerogative. Okay, because the fact is, is that people in the center don't really have uh, – well, well, Tom Emmer, I guess, would find, you, you, he would consider himself closer to the center. Um, he, he does have a position as the, as, as the majority whip. Um, but he's not going to get the speakership. He won't get the speakership if, if he just has to rely on Republican votes. That's the problem. And so, mm -hmm. if he can't get the if he can't get the votes in the Republican Party, he shouldn't stop his speaker bit. He should go to the Democrats. And I think that this is just you know, I, I mean, frankly, I hate Jim Jordan, but Jim Jordan should have done the same thing. Jim Jordan should have gone over and said, "Look, I'm not going to win every single vote over here." I'll, you know, now as to if Jim Jordan could have gotten Democrat votes, that's a totally different question. But McCarthy should have done the same thing. Jordan should have done the same thing. Ember should do the same thing. It drives me crazy. That we have to pander to eight Republicans, or, or yeah, eight, eight Republicans who who you know pulled McCarthy off. I think that they should be expelled from the conference. Um, well, Gates in particular. Uh, obviously, if they got expelled, if all of them got expelled. We'd lose our majority. But Gates should be expelled, and then we should have the Democrats come over and um, join us and um, have a bipartisan coalition. That's what you have to do. It sucks. So, so with, with with the whole idea of going bipartisan on this topic. Uh, the whole this part of the reality that too of not doing this is the idea that the Democrats are using this to really look like they're leading the charge, putting the country on the right track, as the Republicans just self destroy. And so if you have someone who then goes out and, and pulls some Democrat votes, do you lose some authority and power in Congress, or do you gain it? Uh, looking at it from the eyes of the, the American people, the voter tax base. You know, I think that's what the country kind of wants, but at the same time, some of the voting base refuses to let that happen. Um, these people are going to be primaried and kicked out if they do that. And, um, you know, I think that's part of the, the scare here across a lot of these topics. But on the speaker topic, it's really becoming uh, very clear that that's a case of they won't do no, it so because they're going to lose, lose some kind of a power of authority. Yeah, no, no. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. This is my honest opinion. Is you, you can scare if if the, if the if the number of people who are who you need to intimidate is small, like it's five or six Republicans, um, you can target their districts. You can primary them with far right people, um, you know, and, and 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 have them lose. If you have thirty or forty Republican members of Congress, or you have you know, e you know even a hundred um, who openly rebel. Against um, you know the other the other half of the GOP mm -hmm. um, sitting in the House, you can't do that. You can't it, it, that that's power politics. And so the 
the, the, the problem, the problem is people in the establishment, if you, I, I don't even know what establishment means actually. So I wouldn't, I shouldn't use that word. Um, it, it means people, you have no, no platform. You have no base. You just yell out. That's all of the establishment means at this point. Depends on who you're talking yeah. to. Right. Right. Well, but if you're, if you're a Republican, you know, in, in Congress, um, it's, it, it, it's, it's really easy to, um, actually, I'm not going to go down that path. Um, what, what I was trying to say before was that the Republican party used to be the, the party of control. It used to be the party that can, you know, that had unity that could intimidate its members to get, to get in line. And that needs to come back again. Um, and I think that there's going to be there's a there, there's an opportunity for the the part the power of the party to come back but it, the the process of that happening could be pretty painful and it's very very it, it, it's not it's not at all guaranteed that it will happen because we have we we have so many other other problems at hand i think what what, what needs to happen in the house is that the republicans need to get their ass kicked um mm -hmm. and that that's what needs to happen, so that they can be shaken by the shoulders and said, "This is this is just not tenable." Um, the problem is that right. there's a good chance that won't happen. Like they might lose the house in 2024, but they're not going to get shellacked because um, I don't see any evidence that Trump is going to run an uncompetitive race against Biden. And so, um, even if he loses, I don't think the Republican performance is just going to be a, like just awful. I think that he'll carry through a lot of a, a lot of representatives to victory, and so. Um, you know, you might see a narrow, a narrow minority uh, majority. You know, Dems. Uh, you know, in twenty twenty five. But what needs to happen, unfortunately, I don't think would, and, and I don't know if it will happen, is a, a reckoning um, in the party. But you know, it's just not gonna. Yeah, and I think there's there are some seats that are for grabs, um, and I think there will be that reckoning. It should have taken place last year. Well, it did. It took place in 2022. There was a red wave, highly predicted, and uh, none of it came true, except for in Florida. And that should have been the wake-up call for the Republican York, Party right? And in, in, in New York. Um, but that did not. And for whatever reason, this you know Freedom Caucus, I don't know what they – still, they don't have any demands that really have any substance. And you know the whole speakership – Item. I mean, you look at like the heritage. Um, uh, the heritage produces scores for where people stand, and and all these these individuals that are being talked about are all kind of within the same area of like scoring the same on their voting record and, and what they stand for. And so it's it's not coming down to like policy or what they believe. It it, it whatever like it, it's whoever they like the most, and that's why this whole process for the last nine months starting with whole mccarthy getting voted in in january it has just been fruitless because there's no substance behind the argument and we're sitting three weeks since mccarthy was removed and there's still no clear path ahead because there never has been a clear path ahead and that's why the republican party quite frankly needs a reckoning to get a wake-up call realize everything you guys are doing is just going to set you up for failure and therefore the country's going to fail and the Republicans will be for to blame. I mean, it, it's as clear as that math. 
I think what'll be interesting is when the debt ceiling um, comes up, you know, and, and, and the government, you know, is at risk of being shut down. If the pressure, I think you'll start to see some deals be made. If they can't resolve this um, pretty soon, you're going to see some extreme measures be taken um, in order to, because only so much pressure can be tolerated. You know, if you, if you have aid for Israel and Ukraine and extending U.S. debt. I mean, I mean, there's just there's just too many things that need to be addressed and funded in order to for the government to do its job. I, I don't I don't think that the Republicans will. Uh, I, I certainly hope that the centrists in the party uh, won't allow the uh, really the institutions in our country, like you know, and our, our national security uh, objectives to perish because of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the ultimate goal. Um, for everyone in Congress, at least it should be. Um, we'll see how many that is the goal. But moving, kind of talking about the budget too, um, you know, Biden had a press conference last Thursday. Um, I believe it was uh, Thursday the 19th regarding kind of an update on Israel and, and Palestine and, and conflicts. And, um, and with that announced a series of aid packages. So about a hundred billion total, sixty billion going to Ukraine. About uh, was it sixteen billion to Israel, and then another ten billion, um, most of that going to what appears to be Gaza and Palestine. Um, so, kind of just a breakdown there. Kind of shows an update of the U.S. getting involved a little bit more intentionally with the announcement of this H package. Um, most likely. It will probably get pushed through just based off prior history, um, and it doesn't seem to be many people against it, at least in in Congress. Um, but you know how how do we adjust or you know view what's going on in the Middle East, um, which could very easily be escalating beyond um, Israel and Hamas, and could be seeing more action on Iran part um, and different things like that. So, you know, where, where are you at these days with, with the Middle East? Where am I at? (laughs) Um, I think where we're at is the Biden administration needs to pick a position and it needs to figure out and make its terms very clear to Israel, um, because the, 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 you know the, the, if you look at the hostages that Hamas is offering to release, you know they're offering to release two or four or six people. Um, this is all a, a PR front on Hamas's part. You know it's not a it's not a serious solution to end what happened or to justify or to be able to bring to an end the Israeli offensive. And the only reason that they're even offering these hostages um, is because they think or they suspect there's a chance that the Biden administration doesn't want – will be worried that the media will portray Hamas as being willing to negotiate and being reasonable and being the ones that really want to bring about a ceasefire. And that's the just thing to do to reduce civilian casualties and the Biden administration, which – you know, obviously Biden's a he's a Democrat, and there's a lot of 
um, Palestinian support um, in the Democrat Party right now. And um, they are not happy with the way that Biden is handling it. And I think that Hamas right. is, is looking to leverage that. And um, the, the point it, the point that I'd like to make is that Biden needs to make his decision now. He needs to because the Israelis need to know if it, whether or not he's to what extent he's going to be with them. Um, so they, they they can make calculations on, you know, can we do a ground invasion um, if we don't know where the, if the president's going to support us or not, um, or you know if the U.S. will back us. Th those are those are questions that they need to be aware of. That, that you know, but but you know when, but a week ago you have the U.S. president you know making very firm statements that the U.S. stands behind Israel unequivocally, and then a week later it's like we we're not sure, um, you know, or, or you know we're, we're going to really press put pressure on the Israelis not doing a ground invasion that, that, that starts to, you know, not inspire any certainty on it for, for anybody. And so, um, uh, right. I think that Hamas will know how to act, uh, more clearly if, uh, if the Biden administration is unwavering in its, um, in its support of, of, of Israel or not, or non-support of Israel. And I think that, um, Israel will know how to act. Um, and I, I think that the, that the best solution will probably come out if firmness is just is there. Right. Yeah, I think you're exactly right on this. Uh, Biden, the first, I'd say, 10 days, or give or take, I thought handled this um, significantly different than I expected him to do. But in a very in what needed to be done, I thought he was much more hardline and. Part of the reason that's needed is any war comes with so much uncertainty. You have no idea what the other side is thinking. You don't know who's really involved on the on each side. Um, you know, is it just Hamas or you know who? What other powers are at play here? Is Russia thinking about getting involved? There's too many uncertainties for the president of the free world to also be uncertain and not be clear in where they stand. They should stand for the people who were attacked, right? Like there was a ground invasion on Israel and people were were slaughtered. And the the response now is coming out saying, Israel, you need to be careful about how you conduct yourself in war. The, the how Biden needs to be handling this is saying, Israel, like you need to make sure your country is safe and sovereign right now. And then, you know, once we once we have that confirmed, once the the constant rockets attacks hitting the Iron Dome and, and thankfully that 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 is there, then let's talk about making sure some of the, you know, that they're not violating human rights, which they are intentionally trying not to. Um, although there are some incidents like intentionally they're trying to follow the Geneva Convention, the rule of law. But then you have Biden like constantly coming out saying, you know, be careful, Israel, you know, not to be too difficult. And it's like, but they're getting rockets sent to them. Um, and and it, the whole I think this is showing the Middle East is kind of responding. So the U.S. has actually shot down several rockets from Iraq that were sent long range missiles that had the range to hit Israel. Um, mm -hmm. This is something that has not really happened in the last year. Uh, a lot of the area has been pretty quiet. Um, part of that's been negotiating with different countries in the Middle East, where a lot of those negotiations are on hold or are basically gone at this point. 
so the U.S. has shot down several missiles, and um, I think that's kind of the first of potentially many of, of tests from different countries or different groups within um, countries that want to see Israel gone. And they're going to start pushing buttons and see how far can they go, what can they send in, how much aid could they slip into different militia groups in this area that might then eventually take down Israel. Um, and, and we also know the playbook a little bit of Hamas because they've been extremely transparent. The leader of Hamas said the last two years they laid low. They tried to show that they were no longer interested in conflict and wanted a resolution so that the Israel would let down their guard and that, that they could perform this attack on October 7th. Like we know that from the leaders of Iran, Hamas, and for some reason we like pretend to forget that. Like this whole, you know, letting a few hostages, they have 200 hostages from October 7th, 13 Americans, right? And that's that's personal. Those are American citizens. I mean, the U.S. has an interest in getting those people back, um, as we do with any American that's overseas. Um, and, um, you know, we're pretending like Israel's going to be the one that is causing, you know, genocide here and so forth. And it's like, can we get our people back? And then we can start talking about these things. Um, but we need to show force right now. We need to show strength and support for what is right not the country that is supporting and taking american citizens as captives yeah yeah it's uh it, it it's it, it's a really tough spot and i um i i, I continue to, th to think about the israeli-palestinian conflict over there and I can never find a, an apt solution because, you know, I, I was talking to um, my sister the other day and I was like, one, one of the problems with the Palestinians is that, especially those in, in Gaza, is, you know, the solution to Gaza is democracy and liberal markets, uh, liberal economics, all of which are Western ideas. And if you're a Palestinian and you believe that the well, and you and you know that the Balfour Declaration comes from the West, and the idea of Zionism comes from the West, and that's what's wreaked havoc for you and your people, the idea that you're going to be open um, to you know the methodologies of Western government and economics is just it's not it's understandable why they're so opposed to it and um like it, but 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 also but also like when you when you look at the poverty i know that we talked about this before but when you look at the poverty and you look at the the youth uh of the palestinians especially those in gaza you're given a situation where the people who if given a democratic government you know Democracy is no guarantee of a of a liberal government. It's it's just a tool, and and so you know. I mean, they, I mean Benjamin Gaza Franklin, has Benjamin a, Franklin. Yeah, Gaza has a yeah, democracy. No. I mean, right? well, it doesn't. I mean, Hamas took it over. They do but, now. Yeah, they don't. They don't yeah. now. Sorry. Um, I mean, they did. It, it, 
right, right. In right. theory, and and so it's it's so it's so the it's so the problem is that you have you have a an open air prison as the status quo, and so even mm-hmm. if you're the Israelis, even even if you presume the absolute best about the Israelis, um, and say that these are people who really you don't mean no ill towards the people in Gaza or anything. The moment you liberalize Gaza is there's no guarantee that they're going to be used for pro growth ends, and and and, and that and that's the problem. And so and so it's like, what do you? Then you start to sound like a a, a social a, so, a social engineer when you start saying, what do you do with these people? What do you do with Gaza? Because the moment you you give it democracy and you try to liberalize its markets, it's the moment it imports terrorism. I mean, I, I understand like. I, not not to justify it, but you understand psychologically and sociologically why that happens. It's because people right. who have been in prison don't act rationally, and so um, and, and you can say part of the same thing about the people in the West Bank, but um, I think they're in a little bit of a better better situation. And so you have these huge blocks of people in a very small piece of land that I, I like. I, I to this day I, I have no idea what you what you do because entrusting. I wouldn't trust myself with my own vote if I had been unjustly put in prison, you know, um, for my whole life. And then someone put a ballot in front. Of, I, I'd vote for the guy who blow everything up. I mean, <laughs> you know, right? You know, um, and, and, and so I don't know. I I don't know what the solution is. That I know that didn't um, perfectly coincide with 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 your, with your point. Um, to, mm-hmm. wrap, to wrap up, what, what, I guess what I'm saying is that I think that. You do the, the the position in the U.S. is not to be necessarily anti-Palestinian, but it's to recognize that the whole situation really sucks. But the Israeli government is by far um, the most pro-democratic and uh, pro-liberal economic, and it is the most liberally ec- economically uh, sound country in in the Middle East. And so that's why it's our ally. We have intelligence. Um, cooperation with them. We conduct plenty of military exercises with them. They're essentially a military base for us. Um, you over there and so um even if we see the way that the palestinians are being treated there's no i can't figure out what you do even if you are a u.s policymaker do you just move them do you just like like mm-hmm. pick them up and move them like i i, I don't know like I, I i don't know what you do well and, and like egypt does not want as does has rejected offers um and at the very least, all and any aid going to this area in Gaza or even the West Bank needs to be condition based. There needs to be very strict uh, uh, regulations around what that can be used for, and then follow up as well. Because um, even some of the sewer piping that was provided to the Gaza Strip was then torn up and used to make pipe bombs, and um, so. Like everything needs to be very conditional based because uh, the country, as you talked about, right? Like the frustration, the the occupation they feel, that is all very real and alive, open air prison. And in, in order to find common ground, one, there has to be a clear leader. And whether that's the US being the broker or, or if there's another country that can broker, but there needs to be a, a clear leader to get that done who can find 
where both sides are able to cave on and, and what side, what points they are non-negotiable and work there from there. Um, but, you know, we, we need to revisit the status quo a little bit of the Middle East and figure out why this is going to happen. Otherwise, it's going to continue to happen as it has happened. So. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Did you, uh, I, I think we should kind of with that, um, begin our, some of our conversation on, on demographics. I think mm -hmm. that's a really good spot to end with, um, the Israeli Palestinian. And, it, and by the way, if you guys have, for those listening, we've covered this, um, at length in other, in other podcasts. And so please yeah. feel free to go back and check those, those uh, out so as definitely well. Um, Check but, it out and, if you haven't already. Yeah, yeah. But as, as far as demographics, demographics is something that it's a very, very broad topic. And I think it's we've been wanting to talk about it for a while, but it's it's a daunting subject because there's so many. There's so many approaches that you can take um, to try to get at demographics. I think one area. Pardon me. Um, that people think of is. Um, like the racial makeup of a country uh, is, is one aspect of demographics and, you know, immigration and the role that that plays. And in the U S you might hear about, you know, the inevitability of white people becoming a minority um, and that, and that being attributed to demographics. And, um, but, but part, one of the other areas of demographics that you can, that, that's very helpful is not just using it as a metric to like measure the, what, portions of the population are certain races, but it's also to look at, um, like the age of the country is, um, is, is something that's very, um, uh, relevant. And yeah, what we've been seeing over, um, the past 20 years is this, uh, serious uptick in the, in the age of, of people living in Europe, the age of people living in the United States. And, um, more importantly, um, the lack of children that are being born um, really throughout the world. Um, obviously, you have pockets, you know, in uh, in Africa um, and for a while in South America and in Indonesia uh, where uh, fertility was really, really high. But now um, in most of those areas, except really um, Africa and parts of the Middle East, you're seeing this leveling off and in many countries, a not just a stagnation of fertility, but like a, a, a rate that is now beneath replacement level. Um, and so if you look at a lot of Asian countries, if you look at a lot of Eastern European countries, you see, you consistently see birth rates that are um, around 1.3, 1 1.2. Um, an extreme example would be South Korea, which has a replacement rate, a fertility rate of 0.8. Um, and it's causing panic in a lot of these countries uh, because the, the the problem that you have when you don't have enough kids is uh, well, there's not enough young people to you know, work in the economy to um, you know, pay taxes, and the government use those resources to provide re um, to, the government use that revenue to provide resources to the elderly. Um, so it, obviously, people know that the money is it doesn't inherently have any value; it's just information and. Uh, but the problem is, is that when you have fewer and fewer people that are able to uh, be that be, that are able to work, um, the more and more people who are old 
that are receiving services um, begin to burden the economy um, when you have less and less workers. And so you start to see things like um, you know, there being more diapers that are being um, purchased for old people rather than babies. You know, that's an indicator mm -hmm. that the society is getting very, very old um, and, a whole, and a whole lot of other things. And so there's there's a um, a conversation going on now to, days about why this is happening um and and there's a wide variety of of opinions but um one of the ones i thought that we should talk about briefly was urbanization and so um i know i've been talking here for a bit but um i wanted to just give a, a lead in about urbanization and why this i think is a is a is a, a, a an important component uh to understand when you're when you're thinking about an issue like this so mm -hmm. Essentially, pe people have always congregated in cities. Um, you know, cities have always been you know, um, they're, they're, they're the real like some of the first signs of real of, of a civilization. Uh, it's where the economy really starts to become sophisticated and manifests itself in a certain area in a number of different ways. And so, what what, what do I mean by that? Well, if you're in a city, you have you know uh, you, you have people working in in industry like uh you have you can have steel workers you can have um manufacturers you can have uh bankers you can have people working in healthcare you can have politicians and lawyers you can have the whole network almost of the economy except really for agriculture working in a close space uh where people can have a lot of their needs met in a very small area and that's really really valuable um mm -hmm. and so cities have always been something that's been appealing um, but as as um, society's gotten more and more sophisticated, the amount of resources that um, people need um, it ha hasn't really gone up. But the availability of, of a wide range of resources has uh, made it even more appealing to move to the city. Um, the issue with this is that living in the city means you have a, a much smaller living space. And... Um, and because of that, it's just harder to it's harder to raise children. It's a lot easier to to have children if you have a home with a yard uh, where they can play outside, and you have a house that maybe has three or four bedrooms. Um, whereas you know in the city, if you're you know living in an apartment, you might have a two bedroom apartment. Um, but there, there's a point that I kind of want to get into, and I wanted to ask you about here, Jacob, which mm -hmm. is I'm not totally convinced. That the, the that the uh, the smaller space is actually the reason. I, I think don't. I don't there's, think um, it's a reason really, uh, a primary okay. reason. I don't think that that is one. Yeah. Well, I wanted to lead up with this, which is you know they were talking in Europe about how Europeans are becoming more American when it comes to their choice of automobile, uh, and so they're they're opting now. For, they want SUVs. They want four seaters, even though they're having less. They want children. the V8. Um, yeah, they want the V8. And it, it, it was interesting uh, because, you know, back in the day, you know, you buy a Mini Cooper, you could still throw you throw your four kids into the back seat, even though it was ridiculously small. And that was fine. That was fine. And people would still have lots of kids and they were willing to throw them all into a really compact vehicle and drive them around. Whereas nowadays, it's like, I need a bigger car and I need less kids. And I, I've. I've begun to wonder. Oh, and you can't really... smoke while you drive either, right? Or drink. It's going to bring communism to the country, as that meme says. Uh, but, but, but uh, to stay on point, uh, what, what I want to ask you is why? 
do, do you think that the concentration of space is a, is a problem or do you think that it can uh, the reduction in people having kids in the city is uh, something that you know, can be explained through something else yeah i'm not i'm not against uh increasing density in housing specific, uh, specifically i think there can be a number of, of great positive outcomes to that i think the us has done a horrible job historically of this. Part of the reason for that is you see urbanization happening turn of the century, industrial revolution. People start leaving farm and moving to the city where the jobs and opportunities were. And that's really what the city's always been. The attractive part of cities was that there was opportunities. You got to rub shoulders with people um, where working on the farm, you saw your family and, and maybe once a, a month you got to go into town and and you see others. So, you know, you that's that, that's kind of the draw. And then you see a lot of ups and downs. Part of the ups and downs is the cities that were not really designed oftentimes in America around increase in population. So that's why you have roadways that are very restrictive. You have um, different easements that don't, that are very outdated. And as we've shifted away further and further from um, agrarian society more into this urbanization. People are still, you know, people living in certain space, it doesn't make sense for a quality of life and you need access to the outdoors, whether that's green spaces throughout a city. Um, the way we design cities is the, the question of, of is the urbanization a problem or not? Um, I myself live in a small city, um, you know, by no means is it, you know, I'm, I'm not living in a skyscraper or anything, um, but there's incredible opportunities, especially as a young person, where um, we have community groups and different community initiatives that I can get involved in and um, learn from people who've been doing the work for, for generations and, you know, learn from them. Whereas if I lived in a real rural area, it might be difficult to gain that experience, that knowledge, and as I get older, then give it back. Um, I, I think part of the trends, some of the negative side of urbanization, whether it's lower fertility rates or just overall quality of life, there's some bigger trends going on in our culture as to why those are the issues. And it's not exactly because people don't have a half acre and a four bedroom house, two, two baths. Um, I think that it goes well beyond that. People don't have purpose in life. Um, there's a declining sense of Americans having purpose. There's a design, there's an increase in isolation. And I think all these things are happening in urban environments kind of based off the culture that they've brought and we have designed. Um, yeah. So yeah. Yeah. No, I. No, I, I I agree with that. I think that you're seeing these countries having problems with people having kids, and they're erasing. I don't know. They're making. You know, they're giving people like they're basically charging people no taxes. They've you know, eliminated all taxes. You see how Hungary did this, and in mm -hmm. Japan, they're, th they're trying to do the same thing. Um. 
you know, extending maternity leave to these exorbitantly long periods of time and even offering paternity leave. And, um, you know, again, in Japan's trying to copy some of what Hungary's done with, with their tax incentives. And it's just not really, it's just not working. That's what, that's what they're finding. People just aren't having, people just aren't having kids. And the, I, I think one of the biggest problems that you get to is like when you're talking about living in a city, um, if you're in a small space, you know, you're going to have to have a reason to have children fill that up in place of other things that you want there. Right. So if I have, if I live in a home where I have, you know, eight bedrooms or I don't know, or maybe just, let's just say four, um, you know, I I don't have to sacrifice as much, nearly as much space to be able to have kids. Um, and, and so maybe, maybe it's not that people aren't willing to, maybe, maybe what I'm saying is that urbanization and, and living in compact housing and living in, um, living in the city, it, it, it it forces people to make that decision more about like where your priorities are um in a way that people living you know in the suburbs or you know in areas where they have where they have a little bit more space don't have to um but at the same time i don't think that if you remove people from moving into cities you actually fix the fertility rate in fact I, i'm almost positive that 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 isn't the case if everyone just mm -hmm. if you look at the fertility rates for people living in the suburbs it's it's not replaceable it's higher but it's not replaceable and so there is a broader problem here of why aren't people having kids and i think you have to look at one of the uncomfortable subjects of you know if women are working all the time it's very hard to have kids um and yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a few few pretty clear things of of why people aren't having children. Um, some of them is is there's just an increase in people don't want to have kids. Um, some some data around this as well. People aren't getting married um, as quickly as they once did. So in in the year two thousand, right. um, between ages of twenty five and and 35, 55% of the population was married within that demographic. 15 years later in 2015, that same study, 55% had not been married by then. So a 10% decrease in that time frame. You see this trend happening uh, with sex as well. People just frankly aren't having sex as much as they used to. Millennials and, and Gen Z are are expected to have less than less sex and partners than their parents and grandparents. As awkward as that sounds, um, really. But there's this, less this lack of less partners as well um, is what the data is showing around this. Um, and I think that part of that is um, there's a lack of community, a, a sense of coming together. Um, there's also a lot more distractions. I mean, let's not be like kidding like you have online you have porn you have um online connections you can make that can replace um uh, in-person relationship old-fashioned relationship i don't know what we, should, we can call that non-virtual relationship 
Um, so, you know, even when you, you see people maybe not getting married as much, they're still not in relationships. Um, even though there's this idea of hookup culture and, and Tinder and, you know, cheap sex, um, it's not really translating into greater numbers. Um, another reason yeah. why people don't have children is they're expensive. Um, I think it's no surprise. A lot of people just don't feel like they are doing well financially and adding a child into the mix. It's just a, they, it, the numbers don't add up in their eyes. Um, this comes from a, a number of different reasons. I think some of it is like things like student loan debt, higher cost of living. People demand more out of life than we did say 40, 50 years ago. So people expect more um, vacation time or they expect more, um, you know, the, the latest phone. 50 years ago, no one had cell phones. You might've had, you know, a landline, but that was reasonable. Now a family of four has four phones. Um, so just like different things like that have led to higher cost for having children, which that's a daunting thing for people. Another, And then another factor is career. Um, you mentioned um, women entering the workforce. Um, and uh, many women will say that they don't feel like they have that option to pick between having children, children and advancing a career. It's one or the other. Um, and part of that's around childcare and our workforce as a whole. Um, and this, this is not something that's unique to the U S the only developing country that has a above a replacement rate for fertility is Israel. Um, so that's the only country in the OECD that has, uh, above replacement rate. Every other country, all those Orthodox um, Jews are really, they're really banging it out. They are, they are. Um, but there's, there's some really fascinating data around why that is. And, you know, whether you're pro-Israel or anti-Israel, I think the data is uh, well worth learning from. Part of it is they have a, uh, about the same amount of women in the workforce as all these other countries that they're compared to. But they um, don't struggle with the same question of women choosing between career and and um, raising a family. Part of that is some of their social safety nets. Um, and there's a, a an idea, there's a culture for Israel, um, whether it's religious or whether it's culturally religious. So you have, whether it's the Muslim population or, um, you know, Orthodox Jewish population, both kind of promote um, having children and as many as you can. But most of the country is pretty secular at this point. It's a pretty secular country um, in terms of practice of religion. Um, but there's still this idea of like, we need to have children. Um, there's less Jews today than there was before the Holocaust. So there's still that gap that the country, the Jewish population feels they're obligated to replenish. Um, but some of those barriers are taken out for them to do so, um, which I think speaks to why they're being successful in this area. Yeah, definitely. Um... One thing I wanted to go off of, though, was the the comment you made about people not wanting to have kids because it's too expensive. This is an area where I think social policy 
or um, I would I, I would call social security and the uh, engineering social engineering um, has just gone amok because mm-hmm. you, you're promised money now because you pay social security and when you're older you'll you'll supposedly get some of that money back to help you stay afloat in retirement. But the problem is, is that money isn't a resource necessarily. It's it, again, it's it's information and it the less people that you have in the workforce as i you know said earlier um the more valuable the more and the more expensive that that labor is going to be um and the less people it's going to be able to serve and so with social security telling people that they're going to have a sustainable retirement it really removed people expecting for the that seeing their need to have children as a reason for basically as a safety net for when they're older for people to take care of them for people to be able to help them out with medical bills um and it replaced it with the state and obviously this is just really a, a US critique but i think that there's also a lot of welfare programs out there for the elderly in other european countries uh, but it's something that I kind of wanted to really highlight here about the U.S. is that, you know, we – Social Security kind of t- gives people this assurance that if they don't have – even if they don't have kids, they're still going to get money, right? And and so you evaluate whether or not you're going to have kids based on the assumption that there's still going to be people in the workforce when you're older who are able to provide you services to take care of you. and. That's a false assumption. Uh, that that's actually a drag on the system. And you know, as controversial as it may sound, um, if you choose not to have kids, that's a drag on the economy, and you, that, that's a detriment to the economy. And you know, I'm almost willing to go so far as to say it should be taxed. Um, and and so I, I get a little bit frustrated when I hear people saying, "Well, you know, we'll create all these nice tax incentives." I never hear. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm. Maybe most people do, but I certainly don't. I don't really shape my behavior very much based on the tax code, uh, in terms of the benefits I get. I might consider how I act uh, if I get hit with a with a tax because of certain behavior that I conducted. And right, it's just a fact that if you don't have kids and you don't contribute mm-hmm. to the next generation of people who are going to have to sustain the economy down the road, you are placing a burden on the economy and you should have to pay for it. You should have to contribute and, um, and donate part of your resources um, or have use some of your resources taxed from you um, so that people who are contributing to the next generation to be able to support you um, don't have to um, get a reward because they're subsidizing your decision not to have kids. And, do, you, uh, do you think that really plays out? And the example I'm going to use here is the child ca- tax credit, which has been around for uh, a couple decades. I think in the 90s is the one that was launched. And kind of during COVID, it, it had its largest reform. So essentially, it's what you're describing. People who don't have kids pay more in taxes. People who do have kids do get to claim that child as a dependent depending on the income right. levels, you get a couple thousand per child. 
and um, it's you know essentially just that, um, but it's it seen little movement even when it was expanded during um, the pandemic, and um, you know it, it, people actually were not really that much in favor if you look at polling around that program, right? Despite getting a check every month, too, people re- still weren't in favor for it. You mean in favor of the child tax credit? Yes. Um, but it, it kind of did what you what you just described. Well, but that's the thing. It's, it's so if someone if someone opposes the child tax credit because it disadvantages people who don't have kids, then they're not looking at it economically. That, that's my whole mm-hmm. that's my whole argument. It's, I, I I don't care if you don't I don't I don't care if you don't like it. I don't like if, if people would say, "Well, I don't want to have kids." Um, wh- what are you expecting to happen? I mean, I mean, I guess well, the data showed the, the data showed the people receiving it. They were indifferent overall, overwhelmingly indifferent. Or they said it didn't really matter to them that they were receiving well, checks. That, that's where I also go to tax incentives don't work. That's why, <laughs> at least with regard to fertility, I think that a penalty might work a lot, a little bit better. Where if you say, "Oh, you don't, you, you think it's expensive for you to not have kids?" Okay, how much does it cost to have a kid? What two hundred thirty-three thousand dollars or something? That's like the the rough estimate or something. I think people over a 18-year period should be taxed $233,000 if they choose not to have a kid. And <laughs> like, you know, I mean, I mean, because that's, that's the reality. It's like you, that, that people need to understand that's the tax you place on the system. You are getting a $233,000 subsidy if you don't have kids. That's, mm. That's the thing. <laughs> so if you don't have kids, like, like you can't, it, it, it's so people are like, well, I'm just going to, you know, through my own free choice, not have children and I don't have to be taxed for it. Right. Um, it, 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 in fact, for my friends on the left who probably adamantly oppose this, um, I actually like the idea of an individual mandate for healthcare because Ooh. if you want to get healthcare costs down for everybody, everybody has to contribute right um in the same I, I would say the argument for a for a tax on people who don't have kids is even more compelling because you can say well you know um i'm just gonna i'm just willing to risk it and i'm not gonna get health insurance you know and then i'll go bankrupt um whatever um but if you choose not to have kids you're not risking anything you're all, all, all you're, you're, you're just guaranteeing that you're going to be feeding off of the labor of a labor pool that you didn't contribute to later in your life. There's no risk there. You're just right in the system. And so it's it, it, so um, anyway, I, I think that that's a I think that there should be an individual mandate for everybody to contribute. <laughs> Unless obviously there's like a, a real and compelling medical reason. I think that there should be an individual mandate uh, for everyone to contribute. Yeah, I think I think I you know let you speak. I tried letting you uh, describe your your viewpoint. Uh, don't say I'm fully on board. I think there's a a handful of holes that we can poke in it. Let's start with maybe the medical um, exceptions. That that'd be a significant list there of you know it's not like everyone can get pregnant. Um, and multiple times. I mean, I think there's some true barriers there. I, I think the the solution is not for there to be more kids right away. I think 
if you can roll out a program that incentivizes that, it's if at best it's going to be in the short run. I think what it really comes down to, and what a lot of the excuses are, whether it's kids cost too much, career, um, just timing of life, um, finding a partner, all these kind of come back to there's this idea that America's just don't have a purpose in life anymore. Um, there's a decline in civil engagement. There's decline in, in things like civic groups. So your Roritan, your Lions Club, uh, Boy Scouts, these types of groups. Uh, the whole idea of the bowling, bowling alone, clubs, right? Yep. Yeah, bowling alone. The bowling has, clubs. Uh, exactly. As the book shares, there's that whole decline. And even if you ask people, do you feel you have purpose in your your work, your vocation, you start talking about these topics, the trends are all declining. People are, are overwhelmingly saying no, like, or I'm not sure they're not confident. They don't see a path of where they can grow, where they can improve their lives, where, um, you know, 50 years ago, you kind of had that sense of you could graduate, maybe even an eighth grade or high school with all you need, but the people before you, your parents, different mentors in your community would help you uh, facilitate, get you on the right track. And from there, you were able to have purpose and things like getting married for um, help provide purpose for people. And there's different measurable metrics that the U.S. has moved away from and the trends are moving against. And I think that has led to this isolation crisis. This is, And I think this is where, for me, this topic really hits home is the pandemic of like isolation and lack of purpose. Um, any and all studies I've ever seen on those two two topics show only negative side effects. They say like isolations, the new cigarettes, there's all these different taglines that come along with it. And it's true. Um, during the pandemic, you saw that as well. Uh, massive spikes in, in mental health and, um, you know, mental health services being overwhelmed during the time of the lockdowns and less on whether the lockdowns were right or wrong. There are clear impacts from those um, that only kind of accelerated some of the trends that we saw pre-pandemic as well. Um, and so if, if you don't feel like you have purpose, you don't feel like the world's heading in the right direction, you feel like your life is only getting worse, why would you consider bringing in another life um, and having a kid? So I think there's there's a huge factor of that, especially among young people, um, whether it's you know being crippled by student loan debt or um, you know, just different addictions. Um, there's, there's a lot more factors there. People just don't have purpose. And if you don't have purpose, you don't do things that really the society needs. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a great point. Um, and if you don't feel like there's much purpose in life, then you're probably not going to get married. And yeah, I think another thing that we'll have to go into in another episode would be how do you, if you're going to try and make it hard for people not to have kids, how do you make them get married? Because that's probably going to be the hardest. It's going to be really difficult to make people that are single have kids. And so 
Yeah, I, I think there's yeah. a real there's a real there's a real role of government conversation. I think that we should have um, here in, in in the future because um, this is a tough this is a tough question. The role of government, role of churches. Um, yeah, and so I I, I completely and, and I, I think... completely agree with what you said. It is a tough topic to talk about because I think it's personal for a lot of people just as a whole, like people can feel called out on, on this or say like, yeah, I feel isolated. Like I, don't, I, I've done nothing but try to do better for myself. Um, a lot of the solutions I think are traditional J dare Christian values too. Um, and I think in another episode, we really should dive into that. Not, and I don't say that just as someone who is a Christian and a believer, and and that's the lens that I, I see life through. That's part of it, uh, you know. I must admit, but there's also just clear data in this. Um, people who, and I, you know, I think it's worth diving into as well. This is a topic where I think Christian, you know, evangel, uh, evangelical Christian in America kind of yell and scream and like ah this is the way to do it um but then at the same time you look at the data and it, it seems to be the correct way to do it and a solution to a lot of yeah. some of these problems um and so it's kind of an interesting mix between just kind of what works and then also what one religious group is is saying um not to say like yeah let's just go full steam on every topic that evangelical christian communities say but uh, i think there's one that i think religious groups around the world not just christians there's a lot that they have adopted um and it's because they've worked so looking to move back towards those would be i think wise right right no i no i hear here i second all of that um well i think we're just about the yeah we're at the hour mark and so i think that's a that's a pretty good place to stop um yeah if you guys like this episode you know please like subscribe share um it's number i believe is number 13 so wish us luck on that one hopefully more people view it make 13 our lucky number and uh we hope to uh, that you guys join us next week as well uh we're going to try and continue this discussion on demographics there's a lot to unpack um we'll probably go into maybe more of the meaning the role of government uh or i'm sorry the crisis in meaning and the role of government but um it may be more uh, specifics too. kind of look at um individual countries uh, in different regions of the world so jacob you want to wrap it up joe yeah episode 13 you know he's in the hard pain. Like and subscribe if you haven't already. Share with your friends. 